The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Imagine, if you will, a frog, but he's not a normal frog. No, this frog is blue and he's wearing some kind of pilot's cap. In fact, you could almost call him a crazy frog. (laughs) He's riding a fake motorcycle, but yet he still flies across the road. Da-ding, ding, ding ding-dong, da-ding-dong, vrom-vrom-vrom, he says. (laughs) And this week, we tell the story of the Crazy Frog. That's right. It's the Crazy Frog. You guys have been requesting it. I've had people literally stalking me, setting fire to my apartment door, which I don't appreciate. I have a daughter, for the love of the Lord. I mean, so it's quit whatever. setting fire to my door, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you can't make me, old man. The cleansing flames <laughs> will get you. And two, Jake, it's been you this whole time. I of course, that everything. makes sense. It's That's indiscriminate. Jake is dressed as Crazy Frog right now. I don't. It's a very. I don't understand why you do it for a non-video podcast um but jay can i ask you something yeah do you want to see something scary oh boo we're d- i swear to god if we spend more than 10 do minutes talking about like the movie really scary do you want to see something really scary i watched the movie for the first time for this podcast and what yeah i never got around to it never saw it i know like all wow. the references i know the lineage of it and it was one of the least entertaining experiences except for the last segment with yeah. fucking John Lithgow, and that's just based because Mad Max guy. And the opening. I think that opening. All right. No. Okay, let's get into it. No. Let's get into the gush. We're talking about Twilight Zone today, ladies and gentlemen, obviously, because I did the whole introduction before. I'm a bruiser. He's a wizard. Who gives a shit? But we're going to get into this right now because I think actually... I ended up going back and like watching all of those old, like the reason for the season, which Jake, I agree with you. We, by the way, listeners, we're going to be focusing most of this show's attention on the original series. That's where the fucking, the meat is. Sorry, That's ro- 2001 Forrest Whitaker right. UPN fans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rod, I mean, Rod Serling, he's the reason for the season. I mean, it is, it is 
just the greatest, and I, I'm so excited to get into it. And and I ended up watching all, all those, or a lot of those. Ed Larson, my roommate, mm-hmm. uh, co-host of The Brighter Side on Last Podcast Network. Go check out The Brighter Side. Uh, of course, how would you not know? He does uh, all... He's our Disney expert uh, that we ha- that we now officially have coming in for our, <laughs> any Disney-related episodes or theme park-related episodes. He had, uh, like, got this, like, cool kind of bootleggy box set of, like... I think maybe even the entire run of the first series, right? Five seasons, 156 episodes, something like that, 150s. But anyways, a lot and a lot of episodes. And we ended up living together in Brooklyn and... um I ended up watching a lot of it that way with him, you know, enjoying that green, green goblin, if you know what I mean, and just hanging out and drinking 40s and absolutely loved it. It is so good. But, Jake, I will say I, a little piece of my heart is tied to that movie just for the soul. F- so many things we talk about in the show, it's like it was just always on mm. HBO, like, you know, and so I just ended up watching it all. It was like just that Saturday afternoon movie that would just be on and you ended up watching it and it would put you in a weird, bad mood. I totally agree with you, Jake. Mm-hmm. For the most part, the strongest ones definitely. I mean, that John Lithgow terror at, oh, fuck, what's the proper title? Terror at 20,000 feet or? Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Uh, that is incredible. Um, I I think that's one of the greatest like terror horror segments mm-hmm. ever made um but that opening dude so my parents went out i i still remember this clear as day my parents went out uh on like a date night it was one of the i was just had just gotten old enough where they could leave me at home by myself uh which was my favorite because then i could sit in the family room which had the only tv that had cable and i put it on hbo and i was like oh cool i bet i'm interested in this it was the twilight zone movie I threw on that opening segment that want to see something really scary segment with Dan Aykroyd happened. And when that went down with the monster reveal, I fucking flipped out, turned off the TV. It was like, nope, I'm not doing this. And then eventually I ended up watching the rest of the movie down the line. But that scared the fucking shit out of me. It had no effect on you as a grown adult. As a grown adult, no. Hold it. You might as well and be the like. the midnight special you, coming on uh, me. Oh, wow. Two dads singing a bunch of boomer shit. Wow. Wow. Cool. Well, it wasn't boomer shit back then. It was just, uh, you know, normal. It was sti- that's still baby boomers doing like, hey, remember a bunch of shit from the 60s and 70s? It's boomers shit even in the 80s <laughs> it's just them doing what we do now <laughs> and so right, it's intolerable right. I, right. you might as well tell me like and that's when uh when my uncle kind of just turned around from behind a corner and went Bleh! at me that right. was the defining defining moment of horror but the building of tension i mean it's not twilight zone it's like it's 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 a jump scare but the building of tension was what made that so good the whole just like come on you sure you want to see something really sc- no, like okay i'm not gonna that i'm sorry worked for me I'm in such denying, a profound way when i was a child Jake. i am denying you your joy and that is three uh, people died by the way <laughs> we'll get into it i'm denying <laughs> you your, i'm already upset that we're talking about the movie this much <laughs> yeah why we're spending so much real estate up top about the movie i just had to defend it slightly it 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 is a part of my childhood and at the same time i agree with you and at the same time that lithgow uh, Nightmare Two Thousand Feet remake is legit incredible. Uh, but we yes, we will not be spinning too much. Just we'll just be talking about the horrific deaths that <laughs> occurred during the shooting, for the most part, and then we will move on. So, 
For me, The Twilight Zone would always air in these like marathon chunks. I know now they do it for New Year's Day. I want to say it was like Halloween as well or like April Fool's Day. WPIX 11 in New York would do these massive chunks of Twilight Zone episodes one after the other. I would watch them like by myself, home from school, in my PJs, and just every time there was a genuine holy shit twist, I would like start running around screaming in the house. Uh, I remember specifically one time my dad came up to check on me and he was like, uh, oh, you're still watching the Twilight Zone? And to serve man came up and he was like, this is so the best good. one. And I was like, what? Like, why? He's like, "Do you have you figured it out yet? And I was like, figured what out? And he's like, keep watching. And then just came to walk back downstairs. And so I'm sitting wrapped the whole time. There's aliens. There's government officials. There's language, you know, move over arrival. There's this is the original linguist does fucky alien things. And the final fucking drop. Yes. To serve man. It's a cookbook. Just kaboom. Like, I didn't even realize you could tell stories like that. I didn't even understand the twist as a concept. And it just, like, electricity through my tiny body. I just start flailing and screaming like, <laughs> ah! That's so funny to me, though, because the definitely way before I ever saw the original, what I it was, the I believe, the very first Treehouse of Horror on The Simpsons yeah. did a parody of it. And that is definitely how I uh, how I devoured that story initially oh, when yeah. they kept blowing on the cookbook yes. and it kept changing to serve that, you know, like it kept going back and forth. And then they yeah. ended up being the assholes in the end. Oh, and, uh, yeah, so yeah. It, there was definitely like I was oh, for some reason I was aware of like the trope of doing a bad William Shatner impression going, mm-hmm. there's something on the wing, which is not how right. this was pre-Star Trek. He still had a glimmer right. of acting in his face. He, it's actually a great performance. There's a reason why well, that episode was a Yeah, and, and and then the other like unsung performance for him really is the nick of time, which the the Twilight Zone episode um, about him and uh, his uh, their newlyweds in this diner. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's this little like devil head fortune teller thing that answers yes or no questions, and um, it's it he just feels like the answers are too accurate to not be like an actual fortune telling device, and then he gets like stuck in the restaurant, and that whole episode is so brilliantly written and acted, and like. It's just the uh, talk about the building of tension. Like mm-hmm. you want to see something really scary is whatever in comparison. I mean, the building of tension of them like getting sucked into this like fortune telling device and just the, the the way that they like give that device that inanimate object a personality almost is so fascinating that I just uh, absolutely love that that um, that one and. I will just in general say too, um, you know, it's uh, talking about the Simpsons thing. It just speaks towards the the lasting legacy of Twilight Zone. That I mean, how many properties have parodied, oh. commented on, you know, uh, just endlessly uh, the that original series. I mean, it is in- the incredible. same way that elder millennial generation can just like talk to each other in the form of Simpsons quotes, like yeah. the Boomer and Gen X generation can just like rattle off Twilight Zone plots and references totally. 
Like it was just the part of the common vernacular. So do you know the Murder Fist parody? It's one of my favorite sketches we ever did. It's definitely based on Ed and I watching that box set. Uh, it is called Porn Enough at Last. <laughs> it is a parody of Time Enough at Last. This is honestly still legit. It's one of the earlier Murder Fist sketches we wrote in New York, but it's still one of my favorite sketches we ever wrote. Because we did a, Ed and I did like a scene for scene parody if you go back and watch it, like we go, we do the bank vault, mm-hmm. we do the wife at home, but instead of him being obsessed, it's a parody of time enough at last where the guy's obsessed with reading spoiler alerts on this shit, by the way, but I'd to tell the parody, you don't know this one. Happy yeah. spooky month, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Kicking it off strong with this one, man. Um, but yes, if you're listening, I mean, go watch, like look up a best of list of, Twilight Zone to like watch some I guess if like you're so in the dark about it but if but if not probably just keep listening time enough at last the guy who's obsessed with reading but he can't you know his wife doesn't let him do it at home and he can't do it he gets in trouble at work for doing it and he, all he wants to do is read and no one lets him do it and um, then like he ends up in the bank vault and there's like an apocalyptic moment and he comes out everyone's gone everyone's dead except for him and he finds like the library where all the books are they're still intact and he's just about to sit down and read a book and his glasses fall and break and you know it ends with but there was time now (laughs) there was time so I played the guy. Mm-hmm. It's a guy who's constantly just wants to jerk off to pornography. It's all he wants Real to do. Real stretch. His wife won't let him do it. You know, and Carly <laughs> played the my wife and she hit me in the face of the uh, uh, double-sided dildo so hard that I almost blacked out on stage. We still talk about it today um, in a parody of that scene. And then, you know, at the bank, I'm like, and it's like, I'm just sad. I'm just horrible, disgusting pervert. I just, it's, everyone's just upset, so upset with me. And then the apocalypse happens. I go out, I find the porn store, I sit down to jerk jerk off to support and my hands fall off (laughs) (laughs) and i had these like fake hands it was so funny i had these like fake prosthetic hands it was so So the fun thing too with that is anyone who knows the ep the what we're parodying like very well the second i walk out with the fake hands they're already laughing yeah 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 It was so Murder Fist is a sketch group that like if you imagined (laughs) all Burgess Merediths in a sketch group together, all playing the penguin, it would you pretty (laughs) much got an idea. Honestly, I hope we get to do that one again. I I really love but but it just goes to show, I mean, it's like endlessly parryable, it's endlessly retold, and it holds up it holds up so well that's why you don't need reboots and they've done it so many times and i do actually appreciate what i've seen of the jordan peele reboot it's not it, nothing holds up to the original mm-hmm. but it was a pretty decent effort it made a lot of sense for the lane jordan peele has been in as well uh with you know get out and us and all that so i appreciate that it exists but at the same time just go watch those old episodes. look up like all the i mean we'll talk about a bunch of good ones so you write those down as we go Watch him, man. They do. It's such a good. It, it's one of the few old timey black and white TV show pieces of media that actually still is great. It just doesn't need improving. There's so many things that like makes this show infinitely rewatchable and makes it perennially great. Although to be said, having watched a lot of episodes, we all remember the classics. But there's like for every ten that you watch, like six of them are gonna be. Uh, what if a cowboy was the devil? That'd be fucked well, that's up, the right? Thing. That's, look up the good one. Yeah, I'm talking about the 
Jump straight. There's a hundred and fifty yeah. something. And we'll talk about too. Rod Rod Sterling wrote like the lion's share yeah. of them, by the way. So by season three, he is like, I'm running out of ideas. I mean, it's it's an absurd amount of output that he put into it. But then you also have amazing talents like Ray Bradbury and the and all all Richard sorts of Matheson, folks. We'll talk about all these. Yeah. Okay. So number one, the half hour format. Yeah. That, like, while a lot of old teleplays, like, kind of meandered and had a lot of time to fill, this one was, like, if to, by its very nature, with commercial breaks, they had to get to them, introduce characters quick, introduce yep. their motivations quick, introduce the scenario, introduce the twist, and, like, and you're out. Which is incredibly efficient, especially for a generation with, like... Uh, vastly diminished attention spans. Well, and a great argument for why it still holds up, because if you watch most of the old TV, I mean, just pacing was a lot slower mm-hmm. back then. And so that's why a ton of stuff just doesn't feel right in the modern lens. I haven't you know? watched a lot of classic teleplays from the era, but I imagine it's mostly old women exchanging their recipes for molasses. Until like the last scene. Well, you know, you're not wrong. I mean, I, you know, I was used to watch what Burns and uh, what was it? George Burns and his wife, Burns and Gracie. Yeah, yeah. With my dad. And like the weirdest part about that was they literally would like in the middle of the episode, instead of jumping to a commercial break, they would just like start advertising a product in the kitchen. So you're actually not off the mark there, Jake. And all of that stuff makes things feel dated and old. But yes, when you go look back on a Twilight Zone episode, the pacing is not like that. And and the the ideas are freaky and the especially for the really good ones. You know, we're not we're again, we're talking about the ones that rise above. The ideas are really interesting. The tension is is perfectly paced. It 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 just it just get, it still hits. And so A, a lot of fun researching this one and just like enjoying the media surrounding it. And B uh, you should too. Uh, off of this, go back and even the ones you've seen before, go back and rewatch them. Holy shit! Does something like the monsters are due on Maple Street? Uh, just still incredible and still very potent. I think one thing we forgot about because especially when we were kids, we didn't even think about how these were all like morality tales, tales about the human condition, tales about society. I mean, they they spell it out to a certain degree, but when I was a little kid, I was watching for aliens and monsters and oh, twists. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? My liberal New York childhood, I immediately like would just be like, "Ooh, I get it. I get it. Being upset at Jews is wrong." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I mean, beginning to suspect that war War should be avoided at times. <laughs> For sure. I mean they they throw it they throw it at you, but we'll get into how the, it's still not not as in your face as, you know, what Rod Sterling initially was trying to do. And in fact, this was all an effort for him to get you to think about these things, you the viewer, mm-hmm. in 1957 or whatever the fuck it is. Um, what did it run from 1959 to 1964 and 1961 to get you, the viewer to actually like process these things, even if you're a horrible racist in Alabama or more specifically, you're the CEO of a soap company that doesn't want to piss off racists yes, in Alabama, hundred percent, which was the main, which is kind nasty. of nasty wall that Rod Serling kind of found himself hitting up against before he started doing the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And it's Rod Serling himself as this grounded figure. Yeah, we should say he's also the narrator, he's the host, he's he's the writer, he's the everything. 
the executive producer. It is his rodeo. And through his character, he's like a, he's a World War II veteran. He's a family man. He is like not unhandsome. He kind of elevates and grounds this highfalutin sci-fi fantasy show with a bunch of fucking nerds in the writer's room with him. He grounds it and kind of gives it this human relatable entry point where a lot of sci-fi properties are just kind of too already lost in the sauce. And uh, his own personal writing was very much from a humanist and realistic standpoint. So even when there were demons and aliens and wizards and all this other shit going on, those moments before the big holy fuck twist would just be very relatable and very grounded. It's It really was the this incredible gift of storytelling. Yeah, and, and underappreciated back then and still maybe not as appreciated as it should be today with how how f- just incredibly game-changing it was for television just in general. And uh, again, I'm all, I'm just such a big fan. Of, if you've listened to the show long enough, you know I'm a big fan of underdog stories. I'm also a big fan of something like this that just fucking holds up mm. still, man. Like, that's so miraculous to me. All right, let's get into it. The Twilight Zone is an anthology TV series created by Rod Serling. covers a range of genres from fantasy to horror to science fiction, and most all episodes come with a twist at the end, as well as a moral statement. The first series ran from 1959 to 1964 and was shot entirely in black and white, airing on CBS. There were three more series that attempted to have the success of the original, the most recent one airing in 2019, produced by Jordan Peele. There was also a film in 1983 and a theme park ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando. The Tower of Terror. Did you ride it, Jake? Oh, of course. Loved it. There's a photo somewhere in my parents' house of me like curled into the fetal position or like squinched (laughs) inside my own ribcage going like... We I, I I went into it just being like cool, so be a cool drop ride. But all of the accoutrements oh, it's leading a love up to letter the drop, to the show. or it was now it's uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy. But it was so cool. The holograms and stuff <clears throat> they used. They gave you the feeling of that intro with the windows and the eyeball. God, and that eyeball that is stuff. so fake. I love that yeah. fake ass eyeball in the <laughs> opening. It really like any source, any tension of like, oh god, here comes some spooky shit, and then there's just this like pee wee's playhouse ass eyeball floating. So funny, and, a, and an E equals MC squared. That's where the yes. E equals MC squared means you're in a science place. Comes yes, from. totally. All right. Rod Serling, very interesting guy. I'm so glad we get to talk about him today. Like all interesting people, he was born in upstate New York, the most interesting place a human can live. Just south of Syracuse, he grew up pretty modestly, but always had a passion for performance. His father built a small stage in the basement of their house, and Rod put on plays, often with the neighborhood kids, sometimes just alone. He also loved pulp magazines and movies and would entertain himself for hours by acting out the dialogue from them, according to his older brother, Robert. At school, he was the class clown. It was his uh, seventh grade English teacher who influenced him to join the school's debate team and newspaper as an outlet. Most other teachers thought he was just this bad kid, uh, uh, close to my heart, because I was also like disruptive in class until I found theater uh, and uh, escaped that way. And while working at the newspaper at his school, he began to grow an interest in social activism. He also loved the radio, particularly storytelling shows in the genre of 
horror, fantasy, and thrillers. And during this time in his childhood, he discovers a man named Norman Corwin. Uh, and he was instrumental in getting Rod uh, to the Twilight Zone. Uh, Corman wrote and directed radio dramas in the 30s and 40s in a very similar way, used entertainment to tackle serious social issues. Another name in radio he was super into was Arch Obler, uh, most known for a radio horror series uh, he was head writer on called Lights Out, and again, who used the genre to infuse social and political ideas. Imagine, if you will, a rocking chair that was pretty creaky and just people in their homes in the 1930s being like, oh, right. fuck. <laughs> and it says the N-word, which is, you know what I mean? Or what, I don't know. I figured it'd be something like that. Doesn't say the N-word back <laughs> Oh, right. It's better than the couch because the couch is racist. <laughs> is that how it would happen? I don't know what they did back in the day. I don't know how they did it. Just just a farmer in overalls holding a shotgun, pointing it at the radio, just being like, I'm freaking out, man. <laughs> <laughs> the morning after he graduated high school in 1943, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He's one of those guys that was like, Come on, everybody. We got to rise up. We got to get together. We got to fight the good fight and really like glorify. It seemed like he really like made it uh, idealized it in a lot of ways. It also helps that he was Jewish and desperately wanted to fight True. in the uh, European He literally theater. wanted to go murder Hitler. He yeah. wanted Inglorious Bastards. Like he wanted that to be his life. It was very much not that. No. He was very upset to find himself in like the Philippines, right? Yeah. In Japan. So uh, instead of Germany, and killing that Hitler out. and fighting bravely, uh, you are now in the shit fighting over a godforsaken muddy island uh, and just it's there's a reason why. There's so fewer movies about the Pacific theater. It's just, it right. was not, not, not a uh, romantic. Well, a lot of that was because of his height. Mm. That was actually what kept him out of the inventories. He wanted, I think he wanted to be like a pilot maybe, or something like that. Um, or like dry, like a tank driver. Or something. But he was too short for certain things. So he ends up in a really shitty, uh, the 511th parachute inf- infantry regiment of the 11th airborne division. So he's one of the guys that jumps out of the planes. Mm. He first saw combat in the Philippines in 1944 and he was later assigned to the 511th demolition platoon which was literally nicknamed the death squad due to its high casualty rate this is apparently because and it makes sense if you know saying earlier in high school whatever he was disruptive he was a class clown you know kind of that sort of thing seems to me that he pissed off the wrong like lieutenant Mm -hmm. or something and they totally fucked him by putting him in this horrific platoon the horrors that he encountered during this time greatly shaped his writing and political views especially the unpredictability of death um and one huge example that's always listed if you look this guy up uh, a good friend of his named melvin levy mm-hmm. was uh doing this like humorous kind of rant in front of the platoon apparently there was uh, planes dropping like food crates mm-hmm. down around them and he was like kind of going off about that making everybody laugh and as he's doing that a crate drops on him from the sky and decapitates him yeah. and that happens right in front of Rod Sterling and that is just one example of the t- absolute terrors that this guy saw that'll make a chain smoker out of anybody oh my god three packs a day I mean he ends up dying of a heart attack at the age of um 50 uh yeah he was and definitely was suffered horrible nightmares for the rest of his life um you know his daughter talked about how he would just just constantly uh having flashbacks and just awful 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 uh just ptsd from this time in his life 
And again, it reminds me a lot of other people we've talked about who also went through this and ended up becoming incredible minds, incredible artists. You know, Kurt Vonnegut is definitely the first one that comes to mind. You've got Tolkien. Uh, so many people uh, that we've we've covered on the show who went to World War II and how it shaped them and, and, and turned them into this like incredible artist slash horribly tortured soul for the rest of their lives. So... Uh, another example, their first big assignment was to recapture the Philippine island of late from the Japanese, which was a success. Sterling said this about the day he did it. It was a gray morning carved out of gray clay and shadowed by fog. It was not just a time, it was a mood. The kind of mood that is part of the province of combat and never conveyed vicariously to the human being who has not lived physically with the tension, the violence, the anguish of protracted war. So... Definitely a fucking wordsmith, man. I mean, this guy gives good quote. I'll tell you that much. After that, he saw his regiment suffer a 50% casualty rate in the Battle of Manila. Um, it's like 400 people mm-hmm. in his regiment, something, that he that died around him. He ended up finishing up his service in the occupation of Japan, later being awarded the Purple Heart and Bronze Star. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. So in Japan, mm-hmm. he got to see firsthand the devastation that war brings. You know, the atomic bomb, this an occupying army, poverty, just just desperation, just really like even after you're done with the combat, how much human suffering is left in its wake. And he, uh, you know, had this war injury that gave him trouble. You know, he was he like his knee, he had a bum knee for like the majority of his adult life because of his time in service. So like everything from the true consequences of war to like what it feels like to in the prime of your life be uh, less than perfect, less than able, like to feel different, to feel diminished. Like, you know, these are the 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 it's just a well of empathy that, you know, if you're just following the hoorah, hooray go with the flow attitudes that were dominant in American society at the time. You need, you need these reminders. You need stories like the ones he's telling to like, just even open your mind to the possibility that things aren't all like gung ho, hooray country, God, whatever. That was a terrible way of phrasing it. But yeah, my, my intentions went through. I'm no Rod Serling. Well, here you go. I got a quote straight from the man. I was bitter about everything and at loose ends when I got out of the service. I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. 
When he gets back to the U.S., he went to Antioch College first for physical education, but quickly was drawn back to the radio and theater and switched his degree to a Bachelor of Arts in Literature. At the campus radio station, he wrote, directed, and acted in several radio programs, which is how he met his future wife, Carol Kramer. The two married in 1948 and had two daughters, Jody and Anne. He volunteered at WNYC in New York as an actor and writer in the summer of 1946. And after college, he took on odd jobs and radio stations all over New York and Ohio, where he, quote, learned time writing for a medium that is measured in seconds. So going back to what we were talking about in the beginning here, uh, you know, that's how he really like cuts his teeth on telling these concise stories is doing these different radio jobs and understanding like every second is valuable real estate in terms of media. Uh, so uh, he gets really good at writing incredibly concise. By 1948, 1949, like almost the entire uh, output of radio scripts from the station he was working on words like originated from him. Uh, apparently later he would look back on this and call it some pretty bad stuff, but Hey, you got to get your start somewhere. <laughs> And he's getting rejected a lot as well, trying to submit scripts to other shows. And so he's learning very quickly, uh, you know, the the level of quality that he needed his work to get to. And he finally gets his first nationally broadcast piece on air in late 1949, a light romance story called Hop Off the Express and Grab a Local for a show called Grand Central Station, Mm. which was this kind of... They told, like, kind of romance stories. Another thing we have to get into, I didn't really get into the history of anthology shows because I don't even know where to begin on that, but there's a way, you know, nowadays I yearn for a good anthology show, a black mirror, let's Mm -hmm. say like really stands out as something I'm like, Oh man, I miss these. We had so many more of these. We had tales from the crypt and twilight zone and you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, But back in the day they were predominant. It almost seems like there was a ton of these shows where they were individual short story format tales. Oh yeah, that were t- and you know in all different kinds of ways too. There were like horror ones. There we just talked. We talked about Lights Out. There were romance ones. You know they kind of they would kind of be separated out by genre, and both on radio and television, incredibly predominant. Very you know I think it was a lot less that you got like a serialized situation. Oh, yeah, no, there's the Armstrong Circle Theater, the Hallmark Hall of Fame. There's yeah the the standard oil presents the theater of the oil. Big Todd's burger tales. Yeah. Where only to every week was a different story about a different delicious burger. I think you had uh, Kleenexes, mm-hmm. uh, seagull stories, which was a weird one. Every week you got a different bird squawking about the town. It was very fun stuff, Jake. In 1960, he uh, gave an interview where he talked about these early years of writing freelance and just sending out these uh, radio scripts. Uh, there were entire shows whose basis was the we are only doing scripts sent from outside. We don't have a writing staff like you could be the next big yeah. screenwriter or radio writer. You know what I mean? He says those were discouraging, frustrating years. I wanted to quit many times, but there was something within me that made me go on. I continued writing and submitting scripts without pay, and what is even worse, most of the time, without recognition. Then, at last, I came up with two plays that were bought by, like you said, Grand Central Station on CBS Radio. I thought, now I surely was in. 
but I wasn't. Day after day, I continued to pound the typewriter with no results. So fed up with the freelance radio script writing game, uh, he also felt that radio was dying and he needed to jump ship to television as soon as possible. So in the early 50s, he jumps over to TV writing first for WKRC-TV in Cincinnati, initially writing testimonial advertisements for essentially snake oil uh, medicine, (laughs) as well as scripts for a comedy duo, just different little things, just trying to make his way in. And in 1953, he and the family ends up just picking up and moving to Connecticut. And he was making a living writing pieces for a live dramatic anthology shows, which were popular at the time. Craft Television Theater, uh, Appointment with Adventure, Hallmark Hall of Fame. uh, Those are the sorts of things. And on Craft Television Theater in 1955, he gets a script to air that would massively boost his career, that would change his life forever. His 72nd script, apparently. And it is titled Pattern. Very interesting, this this uh, teleplay. So according to, uh, I'm working off of a book called The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a, classic, to a Television Classic. Uh, it is 800 pages and I made it like 80 pages in, so don't get too And also I'm, I'm working off a book called The Twilight Bone, mm. Dirty Pornography Tales uh, Revolving Around Twilight. Imagine if uh, you just... will, a lady whose wreck just wouldn't quit. But there's more to it than this. I had time now. My hands fall off. I had time now. I had time. (laughs) There's something on the wing and ooh, it's thick. (laughs) (laughs) It's just this like twerking gremlin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, twerking gremlin. All right. Well, now I know what I want to try to pitch to the networks after this. But go on, Jake. Uh, Read read us from your book. (laughs) Oh, according to just according to the book, uh, there were actually massive uh, cuts and changes made from Serling's original submitted script. And the director themselves uh, completely changed a bunch of stuff. And Serling would later say that he is thankful for it. Um, it was besides just a, a touching tale of two business magnates, one young, one old, just like uh, at odds over the ethics of making money in America, um, had a lot of like, innovative camera work for the time. It really treated the uh, teleplay as a televised, as a television first thing, instead of just like putting a camera in front of some actors. Like it was a, it was as big of a television event as you could have at the time. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And this thing, you know, I don't think I didn't catch a full viewing of it. It's available on YouTube. I skipped around a little bit and it felt like a black and white teleplay. It, I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but it, it still it still has this driving force, this thing I don't think that a lot of people had seen. A- at the very least, it felt like, wow, we went to br- a Broadway play mm-hmm. tonight on our TV screen. Yeah. It was like this really well thought out, well written story about this ruthless corporate boss trying to replace an employee with a newcomer to the company in this heated confrontation that ensues. And, you know, it, it gains all this notoriety from audiences and, and with its unflinching look at the modern corporate world. And this is essentially, this is pre twilight zone. What Rod Serling initially set out to do, which was like really like make cutting, more kind of on the nose pieces for people to watch that, that that gave his perspective about his frustrations with the human condition. And, you know, it works here. This gets him, you know, essentially in, in television, he's getting all, all these 
rejected pieces from years and years ago mm. are finally getting aired. He's getting all these opportunities. And so in 1957, the Serlings moved to California. And as this is going on, the civil rights movement is just starting to heat up. And Serling was horrified at the injustices he uh, that he was seeing around him, including very famous uh, incident that I'm sure you probably heard of, the kidnapping and beating uh, and murder of a 14-year-old African-American boy in Mississippi uh, and, uh, named Emmett Till. And especially after the fact that the two killers were completely acquitted of all charges. And this is really such a big turning point for civil rights. It was just such a blatant injustice. And so Serling then sets out to write an adaptation of the story for an anthology series on ABC. But knowing he couldn't shake things up too hard, he already knew going in, he was like, I can't just, you know, because of the state of things, and we're about to get into that and how nasty that is, he changed the Till character to a Jewish pawnbroker while also working on a play version, a theatrical play version that portrayed the character as black. And he still wanted to, like, get that over in theaters, so that would probably uh, not be as big of a deal as televising this story. The censorship that was predominant in television I mean, still is, but uh, the sponsors got the go-ahead on anything and everything that made its way onto the screen. Serling famously talks about how one time he got a note from a sponsor saying that a character couldn't ask for a match to light his cigarette because the company made lighters. Uh-huh, yeah, there's a lot of that going on, and they don't want to ruffle any feathers, including uh, the clan. Yeah. I mean, it's just disgusting stuff. It, it You know, absolutely... Just uh, unapologetically gross, uh, just catering to any and every community possible, except for black people, obviously. Um, so, you know, and I mean, there was even a thing where, like, the amount of people of color that were even on TV shows in advertisements was so rare, so such a, such a small percentage. So it's just very clearly tilted towards a specific audience that they don't want to fuck with. And so... The whole thing essentially gets shut down after Serling mentions that his new teleplay was based on the Till murder trial uh, on an interview that he did. And this leads to a ton of resistance coming in from the network and the ad agency uh, because they get flooded with white supremacist organizations and other racists sending in letters of protest and things of the like. And so ABC ends up... You're telling me what? that like a bunch of racists and reactionaries can, in a coordinated manner, just Ugh. gum up the works for a studio's uh, PR department to the point where they don't want to bother anymore? I've no, I know, yeah. What a weird! I can't believe that's how it used to work, <laughs> and still sometimes does. Mm. And this leads to ABC requiring changes to Serling's script. Serling said the script was, quote, gone over with a fine-tooth comb by 30 different people. He also said he was forced to have, quote, at least two meetings a day for over a week taking notes as to what had to be changed. So Noon on Doomsday is the name of the teleplay. It airs in April of 1956 with the story set in New England as far as <laughs> possible from the South as they could get. Serling even said they let they probably wished I had done it in Alaska or the North Pole if they could. Uh, they just needed to get it as far away from the south as possible and there were many elements changed including the killer going from a senseless maniac to just a good old american boy who had a momentary lapse in judgment mm. in a letter to a friend serling wrote i felt like i got run over by a truck and then it backed up to finish the job uh, so he is ab- obviously devastated by this and really it's this eye-opening turning point moment for him 
He then made another attempt at directly addressing racism in America with his teleplay, A Town Has Turned to Dust. Uh, This is for an anthology series on CBS. It does actually make it to air, albeit with some major changes, such as moving the story back 100 years and removing any direct reference to Till. I think it was, was it a Hispanic person instead? I know he definitely talked about how, like, if you're going to talk about this, you have to change it to Mexican, and then it's okay. But if it's it's a black person, then it's, you know, everyone's going to have an issue. I mean, that's just where we're at. In, at this time in, in America. It's just, it's weird. The rules are weird. The rules are still weird, just different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but back then, they were real fucking weird. After these two experiences, Serling realizes that if he wants to get these messages across in, American t- uh, in America to the television viewing audience, he must mask them in a way that will allow him to tell the stories he wants to tell, which is what leads him into... The Twilight Zone. So apparently negotiations for The Twilight Zone as a series, because he was this incredibly in-demand writer. He had exclusivity contracts with MGM and CBS uh, Broadcasting. Like they, you know, he was a commodity. His name carried weight. Like people were excited when uh, they saw his name on a show. Apparently, as early as May of 1957, negotiations began for him to have a show on CBS. Uh, It was not until January of 1958 that word leaked out that Rod uh, Serling was going to premiere a new television anthology series. And all it was was a single article in the Daily Register that just said, Rod Serling is preparing a new science fiction series, The Twilight Zone, for CBS TV, airing next fall. That was that was our (laughs) first thing. But it did set off this kind of bombshell within the sci-fi community. People got extremely excited that this uh, kind of known name, this kind of uh, VIP was going to make a bespoke television series that's centered on sci-fi and fantasy. In fact, Theodore Sturgeon, whose name you might only know as the originator of Sturgeon's Law, which is the adage... Yes, he's literally a fish man. Uh, it <laughs> he's is an incredible not a fish man. He is not a fish and a woman squirting. had sex. It's what that uh, that uh, P- Peter Jackson film is based on. Or not Peter Jackson. Who am I talking? Guillermo del Toro. Uh, Sturgeon's film is based law on a- is that ninety percent of everything <laughs> is crap, uh, which is his defense of people that say that a lot of science fiction is crap. Yeah, but he wrote a letter to Serling in nineteen fifty eight, just basically saying, "All right, listen." Listen, sci-fi fucking rules, bro. Sci-fi fucking is insane. He literally writes in a letter, for 20 years I have been involved in sci-fi fantasy and it has been my greatest desire to break down this zap gun syndrome that has poisoned the public's mind. Without fawning, I submit herewith with you and your first 39 episodes will do more to break down that barrier than I've been able to do in two decades and I am enormously enthusiastic about it. Uh, He then goes on to say, Good fiction is simply the understandable solution by people of real people's real problems. Like, already, the sci-fi community is on board and, like, excited mm-hmm. that this art form, this genre, that they are that has, like, completely blown their minds for years now in pulp magazines is going to get a wider audience. 
And just to give you an example, he does this big interview, I think with what, Mike Wallace or something? Yes. I forget the guy. And in the interview, Mike Wallace, one of his questions is like, so I, I'm hearing about this sci-fi show you're doing, uh, The Twilight Zone. Uh, so I'm, I take it uh, you don't plan on writing anything of importance for the next mm. while, right? Like there's this biting little, like it is so shat upon this, uh, this genre at this point in time and would continue to be until like the eighties, essentially. And even then, I mean, it's it only certain people have got, I mean, today I feel like it's, it's the most, all we do is go into the theater and watch fights in space and yeah. wizards fighting fucking mutants. And it, there's no, they ain't no fiction, but speculative fiction, my dudes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, also I was uh, really interested to, to find out that the title of the show actually comes from a world war two term, uh, referring to when a plane gets low enough that the pilot is no longer able to see the horizon. Mm. And this was to Serling. This was actually completely exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to, take the viewer to a point where they couldn't actually see what he was truly getting across uh, or that it was veiled, that this, Ooh. the horizon would be like his social comment. That's, right? I didn't, I didn't Isn't know that. that. That's really good. Yeah. I hope that's real. Maybe someone will write it and be like, um, you read a fake <laughs> article that does it. That, <laughs> but yeah, that's apparently that's the whole deal is he was like, yeah, I'm trying to get these ideals across. I'm trying to get these concepts across even to like shitheads in, some horrible part of America, uh, you know, uh, and and maybe I could turn some people around, especially a, a kid or someone like that whose parents may be the horrible racist or or going about things in, a, in an ugly way. And, and you know, I, I'll reach that person. And I think he did in a lot of cases. So Rod Serling, uh, along with Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson, end up writing 127 of the 156 episodes that aired in the original series. With Serling writing mo even most of that. I, I feel obligated to share this just because there was like 50 pages of this fucking book dedicated to the pilot process, which took years of false starts. Yes. The first pilot script that Serling submitted was- We're talking about, we're talking about the time element, correct? So the time element ended up becoming like the third iteration of this. Mm. There was one called The Happy Place- which was a story about uh, a future in which old people were systemically euthanized and a son trying to like prevent it from happening to his father against a totalitarian state. Uh, sponsors and producers and the network were like, no murdering old people in the first episode <laughs> of your fucking show. Are you fucking crazy? <laughs> there was, yeah, the <laughs> there was, what was the second one? The I believe it was um the old people must be killed. <laughs> oh, I I'm sorry, I got it reversed. Happy Place was the second one. First one was I shot an arrow in the sky, in the air, and that was about like this ETS story of an alien befriending a young child only to be hunted by the government, and him being like, "Well, I was gonna give you the secret to immortality and instant blowjob formulas, <laughs> but now I'm just, you know, humanity's got to work it out on its own. Shame on you, humanity!" And the one that ended up getting the most traction was the time element, as you mentioned. Yeah, the time element is all right. So help me, help me with this one, Jake. But the time element is a psychiatrist. And because it gets very confusing as we go. The psychiatrist and a, a subject, the subject keeps having these nightmares about Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to like, and he thinks he's legitimately going back in time. And so he's constantly trying to like warn everybody about the attacks, right? 
Right. But the twist is a little confused. So he ends up, uh, so th- he ends up having a final like nightmare where he ends up dying in Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when it cuts back, the psychiatrist is just sitting there and no one's on the couch. Right. Yeah. The psychiatrist then goes to a bar and sees the man on the wall. And he was like, yeah, I used to turn tent bar here. He, he died in the war. Mm-hmm. Bum, bum, bum. So the twist is like, a little but the twist is a little confusing to me in that sense. It still has a strict anti-war message and it has a uh, narrator introduce the concept, uh, except the narrator wasn't Rod Serling. It was Desi Arnaz from uh, Desi Lu Productions because the uh, pilot production process took so long to like actually come out that CBS ended up using the time element for the Desilu Playhouse show. That being said, the show was such a bombshell that it got 64,000 letters delivered to the uh to the network within 48 hours of its initial airing. So like all of a sudden Serling has a huge wind on his back. The network is now like desperate to cash in on this like uh hit and they finally get the last bit of like bureaucratic bullshit out of the way to finally start making the show. I mean, it really is a smart concept to make build your whole show around there being a twist ending because once you do that, then viewers are compelled, even if they're like maybe halfway into it and half out, they're compelled to stick around till the end and get and give the network well, that viewership. It's a classic thing. Like Holden, you're in sketch. Like it's if you're making an anthology of disconnected things, Viewership retention is insanely hard because there's no re- there's no characters to return to. There's no progress. There's no like yeah. hook for anything. You literally have to hope people come back on the quality of the brand alone. And so b- making the I uh, didn't see that coming twist be the game that keeps people coming back is honestly as good as any if you're not going to have recurring characters or anything. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Absolutely agreed. So they get the first series going. Again, uh, going back to Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont was bullied as a kid and used science fiction to escape. He ended up dropping out of college in the 10th grade to enlist in the war. So again, war dude, and later worked several odd jobs for selling his first story to Amazing Stories in 1950. Since that time, he got the first piece of short fiction ever published in Playboy magazine in 1954 and soon found himself getting several shows over, uh, several stories rather, over on Twilight Zone, including The Howling Man. Uh, absolute classic. I hate this one. I hate why one. you you. This was the one. Is this the one you referred to at the very beginning? I'm no. like, it's a farmhand, but it turns out to be yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There's there's so many ones where it's like, what if, what if a ghost was a cowboy? <laughs> <laughs> this is an episode I remember specifically because some random sleep overnight when I was a little kid. We literally just started going in a circle describing Twilight Zone episodes as if they were scary stories because there were so many of them that, like, if you knew one that nobody else knew, you got to, like, tell everybody the story of it. And, like, I remember, like, what do you mean it's the the twist is he's the actual devil and he causes <laughs> World War II? Yeah, because he was trapped by the cane of truth. Which certainly so couldn't or get no, out of his Hout- cell. Houghton desperately and just repeatedly fought 
to be an actual crucifix and the sponsors would not let him do it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, this, what the fuck is a stick of truth? What are you talking? It's definitely predicated on the idea like there were no other wars happening or atrocities happening outside of World War One or Two or whatever during that time that he was imprisoned. But, you know, I mean, it still is. And then I was like, or in my mind's eye, I was like, well, you never know for sure if it's the devil. But no, like literally in the episode, you see him grow horns yeah. and a goatee yeah. and he's like, he transforms the devil. Skiddly do and skiddly dee. Uh, oh, Jesus is real and so is me. I don't think he says any of that, but, uh, you know, yes. It's, in Im- of- it's, it's implied. <laughs> he doesn't say skiddly. No, 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 no implication of skiddly If do, you give the devil dee. a big dumb goatee, you are implying <laughs> skiddly do and it's skiddly It's the scariest dee. of the facial hairs, bro. No. Besides the Hitler mustache, but that'd be weird if they did that, made that choice. That would be a better connection than if, like, <laughs> they let out the devil and he just That's turns true. into Hitler. He'd be like, okay, now I get how the devil caused World well, War II. Well, he also wrote, number 12 looks just like you. Is that one you might like that a little bit more? Fun. That uh, one's got a nice twist. About a society of people that, at the age of 19, undergo a process called the transformation, which has them changed into a physically attractive preset design chosen from a selection of numbered models. And the definitely, and the, by the end, it's a big comment on the dystopian future led by plastic surgery and cosmetics, which is actually uh, amazingly on the nose job, pun mm. intended. I feel like Eye of the Beholder gets the, like, you don't need that end Eye of the Beholder. It's a bit ahead of its, well, I mean, 156 I episodes. Know, what know, are we talking I about know. here? Richard Matheson uh, is the other one, best known for his novel I Am Legend. He also served in World War II and afterwards was soon finding his material being published in sci-fi and horror anthology magazines, which led to publishing his own anthologies and novels. And so he ended up writing for Twilight Zone classics such as Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. We'll talk about that a little bit later, uh, a little bit more, and Steel, which takes place in the f- near future where android boxing was replaced, uh, replaced human boxing, and a human boxer's role as a manager for one of the androids as he comes to grips with his own obsolescence due to the rise of the machines, which automation is, uh, is never more a big conversation uh, than now, so that's also pretty ahead of its time. Um, and also want to throw it out there, there were a lot of stories revolving around like airplane pilots, World War II, and boxing. All of these things Rod Serling was really into. Uh, Rod Serling became a really avid boxer in during the war. I think a lot of that had to do also with his size. Mm. And so he, he wanted, you know, he was always trying to overcome his short stature in, in certain ways. And, and boxing, I think, was one of them. But did pretty well, actually, in that. By the second season, a lot of there's this common trope that Orson Welles was originally supposed to be the host of the series. Mm. That is not true. Orson Welles was suggested to replace Serling for season two by the uh, main sponsor, General Foods. Uh, Other sponsors were like Palmolive and I think a toilet paper company. And in the end... Serling himself said that he was worried that they would go through with the replacement because he said he looked like a scared Sicilian prizefighter on TV. He actually had a lot of stage fright. And the fact yes. that he was able to do all that on camera was a massive stress for and him. And was very self-conscious of his speaking style, which, of course, became a main hook for Iconic. the show and something yeah. that's always parodied and, and referenced. And uh, he was actually very self-conscious about that, which is interesting. Well, before we get into future seasons, I do want to call out some some of the greatest episodes uh, ever, ever aired for Twilight Zone came in that first season. 
such great classics we already f- referred to. Time Enough at Last was season one. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street also aired during season one. And that, if you're going to watch one, I think it should be that one. It's about a small town neighborhood street that descends into paranoia and violence simply via the manipulation uh, from aliens from a distance of their household objects and and uh, different things like that. And it's this huge statement on how just the need for a scapegoat, the the manipulation of just our, our simple norms in certain ways can drive us out into such a crazy whirlwind. And again, talk about building of tension, incredible, great performances and great just just rising tension as they all start to become paranoid that you're the alien, you're the alien. Really good precursor, by the way, for films like The Thing. Oh, yeah. You watch a suburban neighborhood start trying to murder each other with loose bricks and you're yeah, like, I believe it. Fucking and it in 22 minutes. Yeah. It's fucking awesome. Uh, also, the After Hours was season one about a department store. Uh, it's the mannequin one. Nah, I don't know if you remember that the mannequin. Was a, that, that's another one where like I, you know what it is? Whenever it's a, like to serve man is a is a great twist because you're it's like this like I comment, great see, comment yeah 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 I didn't see it coming it, but it establishes itself or it's right in front of your yep. face the whole time. Whereas this one's like, hey, fuck it, mannequins talk. <laughs> yeah yeah like, huh? You didn't guess that we're we lived in a world where mannequins can like survive for what was it like? two days or two weeks. They just like throw out an arbitrary time yeah. frame. And the reason why you're confused is because you went past the time limit that mannequins can be people. Like what? The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. But I think another great episode that plays on a, a reoccurring trope, I feel like, uh, an episodes throughout the series run, and that is Walking Distance, which revolves around a man visiting his hometown to find out that he's gone back in time to when he was a child, and he grapples with his own wish to have re- relished in his own childhood, uh, and he learns to accept you know, his older age. It's just that great wistfulness about aging it's got a nice you know the sci-fi twist of time travel um but also dealing with again um, a, a less of a social commentary and more of a comment on just getting old and what we all have to go through in that sense and i think that that's a really beautiful piece and it has a really interesting flow to it as he he ends up talking to his own father mm. you know and and all these sorts of things and, and just watching himself as a child. I mean, I, I think that's a really cool concept played out very well in that. So 
Even though that first season is a critical darling, it was not super popular with viewers, at least at first, and it just barely hung on after it managed to beat out ABC and NBC in the time slot eventually. They even took a hiatus for a little bit and then came back, and luckily, it just barely edged out the competition, and or we wouldn't have any of this, really, uh, this legacy show, uh, if it weren't for that. I mean, so. the constant need to make new sets, hire new actors, like... It, it was definitely more expensive than a lot of its peers of the era. And it was a uh, stressful for Serling because he got like basically a flat rate per episode. And it was his production company, Cayuga, based on the name of the lake that he and his family stayed at in summers uh, in upstate New York, where he was from, that like if things got out of hand, it would be out of his pocket. So like. And that's in addition to salaries for the production staff. That's in t- on top of his own yeah. fees. That's like, so every single episode, he was on the line to keep it under control. And, you know, it's an anthology series, man. Things add up. Also, from season one to season two, the theme was replaced. If you actually go back to season one's theme, look it up on YouTube. Very different. It's this dreamy, kind of harpsichord mm-hmm. kind of mysterious but soothing opening number. This was composed by Bernard Herrmann. Uh, all the seasons afterwards gave us that theme we all know, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do with the, with the guitar and the bongos. This was actually done by Marius Constant, uh, but it was done in a very weird yeah, way. Uh, this is so, so weird when you... Yeah, Constant would so- not get paid. I read a whole article just yeah. on this story. They, the the yeah. iconic theme, this thing that is like... Is, is, Bigger than like the Jaws theme or the James Bond theme or the Mission Impossible theme. This like chunk of music that is just burned into our collective DNA is kind of a hack together of two recorded pieces of French music that were used specifically because if they used American musicians, they would have to pay them for reproduction rights and like union dues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's this... You know, this guy who was what he was like in France or something, yeah. too. I think. And so, yeah, he he just recorded a bunch of stock stuff. Those were two different tracks completely. And they just Frankensteined it together and and started playing it. And Constant didn't even know that his music was being used this in this prolific way for years and years and years. It actually all came to a head, uh, I believe, later when they uh, did the movie. Mm. Uh, and it ends up CBS and, and Constant up going going to court and they end up ruling that constant would moving forward get full royalties from that song but uh uh, with the agreement that they wouldn't have to do any back payment or Mm -hmm. anything like that which seems like he lost out on a lot in that way but serling Definitely struggles during season two. There's a new network executive named James Aubrey uh, who took the reins over at CBS and put a lot of pressure on Twilight Zone because of everything you were just talking about, Jake. The the budget was higher than a lot of other half-hour shows at the time, and... That's why this season had several episodes shot on videotape rather than film. And the episode order was for seven less than the season before. Yet still, season two ends up offering up some great episodes. Eye of the Beholder is season two. The woman's facial reconstruction. I mean, if I even need to go over that one, definitely look up Eye of the Beholder. By the way, it's all available on Amazon, on um, multiple, I think, different streamers. Uh, So just... Plenty of ways to watch it online. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, it has one of the best twists in the show's history. Nick of Time, which I talked about earlier, that William Shatner fortune-telling one. Mm. Uh, amazing. I watched that one this week. It was so, so good. And uh, season... Th- uh, it was so... It was so, so good. And uh, The Invaders, which features acting legend Agnes Moorhead in a solo performance with very little dialogue as she fights off tiny aliens invading her home. Oh, this one. Another great twist. Yeah. Another great twist. So uh, season three, this is when Sterling like Because this woman doesn't speak anything, any language. She is just grunting and screaming and whimpering the entire thing. And at one point to show the little spacemen attacking her, it's clear that like a PA just like threw one of the props at her and it's holding a little (laughs) knife and it's just this plastic (laughs) thing getting chucked at an old woman and she just flips the fuck out and acts her ass off. How many times since then, especially in the 80s, did you watch like scenes or entire movies like critters of people just dealing with like tiny, (laughs) just relentless creatures trying to murder them in creative ways? Season three had Serling reaching maximum levels of fatigue. This is when things start to kind of take a, a downturn. Serling said, I've never felt quite so drained of ideas as I do at this moment. But he also stated, the show now seems to be feeding off itself. His output went from the majority of episodes to around half the episodes, so still a lot. Season three featured what some consider the best episode of all time. I think Jake does consider it that. That is to serve man. Oh, That's I thought you were going to say five characters in search of an exit. Awesome fucking episode. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You also have famous uh, sci-fi author Ray Bradbury writing the episode I Sing the Body Electric about an electronic grandmother who enters a family uh, who lost theirs too early. Very interesting rumination on grief, on family, on love. And after season three, Roger Serling takes a step back from the show. And he takes on a teaching role at his alma mater, Antioch College, which kind of blows me away that he would be like, I want to keep working, though, (laughs) all the time. In fact, I want to teach. I want to take a step back from making I mean, if you had to read as many shitty spec scripts as he did, I think you'd have to be like, I got to tell these people how to fucking do this. And so season four is a real weird one, man. Uh, It's actually a late season replacement for an hour long show. And so because of that, it ends up having to be expanded to an hour long. Sterling immediately, which is interesting considering like how long later series of the show were, especially the 2019 Jordan Peele one. He's like, that's totally goes against how what makes the show great. If you expand it to an hour, it's going to be bloated. It's not going to have that pacing that is so great about these. It's gonna, it's just going to be too long winded. It's not going to work. And uh, so, you know, and, and in a way, he was right. It's definitely one of the weaker seasons. It's also one of the least syndicated seasons because of its yeah. length and uh, inability to rely on that. 22 minute pop that that uh, people come to expect from Twilight Zone. Uh, there is one very solid episode coming from this season. He's Alive, which is about a neo-Nazi played by Dennis Hopper, uh, who ends up encountering Hitler himself, leading to hurting someone close to him and causing some conflict within. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely some highlights there, but very, very strange. However, for season five, Sterling stated, I was writing so much, I felt like I had begun to lose my perspective on what was still good, or what was good, and what was bad. So, still the show produced some of its most memorable episodes. This is the season we get Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Directed by Richard Donner. Where, how about yeah. that for a fucking twist? No shit. Yeah, there's the real twist at the end of our Twilight Zone <laughs> episode. What? Richard Donner directed one. There's so many... I, I, I feel like maybe I didn't even do enough on like how many... 
hugely successful actors, mm. how many famous people before their time <laughs> start? Like Bill Murray, right? Is like a kid. There's like so many crazy talk, stars. I I genuinely I can't believe this these words left my lips, but I was walking I was watching the Talking Tina episode. Yes. Living Doll, which is I was about to mention that. That's season five. And the words actually left my mouth like, ooh, that's Telly Savalas. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's definitely a tr- part of that show. TV's when you go back and watch you're like, holy shit, <laughs> that guy. I haven't thought about that guy from that's like another yeah, reason yeah. why it's fun to go back and watch it. Uh, but regardless, Jim Aubrey at CBS decides to time uh, decides it's time to cancel the show altogether with Serling retorting in an interview that he decided to, quote, cancel the network. So <laughs> like, I'm done with you fucks. Serling ends up selling 40 percent, his 40 percent share of the property to CBS not long after that time. And that is why we get so many reboots. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Anything else you want to say about the original series before we talk with some brevity about the movie and then the uh, three reboots. Just that everything we said in our lengthy gush uh, is true. Oof. It's you will not. If it's been a while since you visit revisited this show, if you've never actually taken the time to watch all this stuff, really just like even just five episodes that are on a list of like, hey, here's some good episodes. You will not regret it. You know, the commercials are cut out. We're in the streaming time. So, like, it goes by really quick. And just the the amount of humanity and drama and imagination that they can condense into these teleplays really just – it makes you yearn for, like, back when TV worked like this. You know, yeah. right now we're in an era where they're spending billions of dollars trying to chase Game of Thrones. And you can be just as – completely thrilled and excited and in and immersed in a story with just five weird uh, five weirdos in a metal tube for 20 minutes trying mm-hmm. to figure shit out. Yeah, and I do at least want to shout out like Black Mirror especially ha- you know, they have made some efforts to bring back the anthology concept uh and to varying degrees, but I still appreciate it and I would love for them to continue to release, especially when it's a sci-fi tale, a fantasy tale, you know, you can just do so much with so little when it comes to that sort of te- uh, that sort of genre storytelling. But regardless, the movie released in 1983, the film was produced by John Landis and Steven Spielberg with four different segments, each directed by a different director and a prologue. We talked about directed by John Landis. When is he something really scary, Jake? Uh, and he also did, John Landis did that first segment uh, in the film about a racist guy who ends up leaving a bar only to find himself on the other end of things in Nazi-occupied France, Alabama during the 1950s, facing the Klan and the Vietnam War. Uh, we'll get back to that in a second. Spielberg directed Kick the Can, uh, which was segment two about a retirement home that gets a chance to re-experience their youth. Uh, again, kind of in that same genre as um, Walking Distance that I talked about earlier. Segment three, I actually, you said the only good one's the last one. I also, man, I mean, It's a Good Life is also really good in the original series, but there's some fucking unsettling shit in uh, It's a Good Life about the psychic boy whose powers force his family to have to be nice and cater to his every need. That's the prop and set department making that memorable. Sure. I I mean, I will also say great 
Treehouse of Horror parody on that one as well. And Bart Simpson. I mean, Nancy Car- Lisa Simpson is in that. It's 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 almost it's almost too. You can't not do it. But, uh, interestingly enough, I didn't realize too. It's Joe Dante, director of the of Gremlins. Yeah, yeah. Who did that segment, which is pretty great. And lastly, the amazing remake of Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. If you're going to only watch one part of this movie, man, John Lithgow is incredible in that movie in in that segment. And uh, you know, he takes over that the William Shatner role from the original. It's directed by George Miller of Mad Max fame, and it is fucking so good. But unfortunately, this whole production was soured by an incident that occurred during the shooting of John Landis's segment. There were two illegally hired child actors, as well as uh, an actor named Vic Morrow, who died during an action scene involving a helicopter. This incident prompted Spielberg to end his friendship with Landis and to call for more accountability of directors pushing their actors and crew too hard during shoots. There were years of legal action that ensued after the fact. Landis and uh, co. were all acquitted of charges of manslaughter, by the way, and totally uh, were able to move on relatively unscathed, but it is essentially what makes this film, like this film already has such a just unsettling quality to it in a way that's... Cursed. It feels like dirty in a way that... Yeah, it feels what? It feels cursed. Cursed, yeah. It feels cursed. Part of it is, A, there's just the horrific nature of the on-screen death, or the on-set deaths. Yeah. There's the fact that the movie starts with Spielberg and, okay, the movie starts with, you want to see something really scary, which is yeah. the least Twilight Zone kind of horror I've ever seen in my life. Sure. And you should feel bad for enjoying I it. I love it. I love it so much. In a midnight special going down on This movie me. was a project by Spielberg and Landis to, like, celebrate their friendship, and it killed their friendship. Yes. So, like, they don't, their segments are, like, severely flawed. Uh, And the good parts, which is just like Joe Dante and George uh, Miller, is just, they're great because they're just young, or I guess George Miller is the same age as ever. They just don't have stakes in the game. They got fight. Yeah. They got chutzpah in a way that, yeah, the others don't. There's people that say that, like, this movie killed the new Hollywood movement and that it created, like... Spielberg himself, I believe, said that, actually. He was the one who was like, I kill my own movement with this movie. This is, this, this is fucked. We've got it. We've got to have more oversight oversight over directors. And they were kind of letting the directors run away with whatever because of the success of stuff like Star Wars and mm-hmm. uh, E.T. and, you know, Indiana Jones and stuff. And, yeah, this was uh, just a rough one, man. It's a weird vibe going on in this film. But, again, for me, it's all nostalgia. It was just that for some reason they always put that shit on on a Saturday afternoon on, you know, HBO. You know, when HBO... Back in the day when HBO got the rights to something, it was obvious they were like, all right, we got to fucking throw this thing out as many times as we can because, you know, we're uh, it's done and in a year or something. So I just saw it all the time. I'm just saying that, like, whatever magic made the Twilight Zone such a cultural touchstone, this movie, re- except, for, I think, for the uh, George Miller, John Lithgow, Gremlin, uh, Arama, it really does just like not, it almost misses the point. Like there's one thing to be like, oh, in this alien story, you really kind of figure out that like human prejudice is like pervasive and needs to be combated by vigilance instead of just like a guy dropping 800 N word bombs and then being like, 
oh, but Nazis are bad. <laughs> like, it's just, or just, right. the whole Steven Spielberg segment is just old people frolicking. It's just like. I mean, apparently he just phoned it in because he did that after the deaths. Yeah. And apparently his heart was just not in it at that point. So he just I didn't can really. Tell. Yeah, you can really. It is definitely the weakest segment, I would even say. But anyways, uh, that well, that's the movie. I, I mean, just say what you will about it, but uh, we'll move on to the first reboot. It took several years for them to bring the show back. It finally happened in 1985 under the helm of then-Vice President of the Drama Department, Carla Singer. And it even said in the notes, like, despite how poorly Twilight Zone the movie did, so it also didn't do very well in the box office, they pulled some major talent for the writing staff, including Harlan Ellison, who wrote amazing stuff. You know, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, for example. George R.R. R. Martin wrote scripts. Mm-hmm. Rockney S. O'Brien, uh, who ended up creating the sci-fi show Farscape, as well as was as well as some heavy hitting directing talent, Wes Craven, French Connection director William Friedkin uh, did did stuff on there. So oddly enough, the by the way, the theme music, which I looked up, and it's it's trippy, man. It was performed by the band The Grateful Dead very strange and since rod serling had passed away in 1975 which we talked about the heart attack the three packs of cigarettes a day charles aidman uh took over as narrator of the series he starred in two original twilight zone episodes serling uh by the way he spent his remaining years teaching while continuing continuing to work in television or radio including creating another anthology show called the night gallery nothing that really hit quite as hard uh as twilight zone but he uh he he still stayed in the game all that time probably just doing a little bit less than he was doing the series has some highlights uh it didn't really come close to the cultural impact of the original show of course but it did a handful of remake episodes uh it did a uh, remake of the after hours uh it did a remake of a, a famous episode we didn't even talk about called a game of pool mm. where this pool player who's the best their the living pool player ends up getting to challenge the ultimate legend who has since passed away who who arrives uh, essentially in the form of a ghost uh, and uh, that's a great episode. Um, and also, there was some really strong originals in there as well. There's a love story called Her Pilgrim Soul that was a bit of a standout. There was some stuff, but regardless, it it runs for three seasons, 60 episodes, comes and goes. I don't even... Yeah, it wasn't... I think I saw a little bit of that one. I think I actually ended up seeing... The 2002 reboot. Oh, come on. All right. First thing you got to know. First thing you got to know. More so than that one. About the 2002 reboot is, number one, it aired on the UPN network. And number two, they redid the theme song by Korn's Jonathan Davis. And it is the most 2002 ass thing I've ever heard in my life. I think it's time for a hit it, April. You're traveling to another dimension. Mention not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are only that of the imagination. You're entering the Twilight Zone. All right, and if we're going to hit it, April, you know what we got to do next. DK Rap. No, hit no, it. No, I'm in hell. Oh, that's the twist. I've been in hell that's the, the whole time. <laughs> DK Rap hell the whole time. This one, I mean, I don't even know. Is there anything good about, like, is there anything good in that Forrest one? I think Forrest Whitaker is all right. 
I think he's... Ah, yeah, he's good. He takes over as host. Of course, Forrest Whitaker's all right. He's all right. There was also a movie in 1994 we we uh, will briefly mention. Richard Matheson and Carol Serling, Rod Serling's wife, uh, end up producing a film called Rod Serling's Lost Classics. Um, this is actually after Carol discovered some of her husband's completed scripts that never made it to air in her garage. And lastly, that brings us to the Jordan Peele produced Twilight Zone. Uh, after Jordan Peele, of course, made a name for himself, instilling social commentary into the genre of horror with Get Out and Us, he was signed on in 2017 as executive producer through his Monkey Paw Productions company. Us is actually inspired by a Twilight Zone uh, movie, the Doppelganger episode. Um, uh, fuck, I, I forget the name offhand. It's something like Look in the Mirror or something like that. But it's totally about this like doppelganger situation and parallel universes and all this kind of stuff. So it's very interesting uh, to get him to see at the helm. You know, in a way, it kind of made me think like it almost flipped back around to in terms of audiences and what they want. Like it started with I have to mask this social commentary mm-hmm. under the guise of a sci-fi tale to get this message across. And then Jordan Peele, it's almost, and that's why the show is a little different even too. It's more on the nose, right? Because he's able to just say outwardly, like get out is a story about Mm. race. This is a, the plot of this story right on his face is about, um, you know, the relationship between white people and people of color in America, right? It's predicated on that. There's like, it's not, it's, if you could say it's masked in the sense of it's in the genre of horror, it's, you know, being fed to you in an entertaining horror genre way, but still it's not like I have to use aliens because I can't use Hispanic people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's kind of interesting in that sense, but uh, the show ran for two seasons, 10 episodes each on the streamer CBS All Access, which is now Paramount Plus. Uh, I was able to catch some of it this week. Uh, I saw the episode, um, is it Replay or Rewind? Fuck. I think it's Rewind. Replay. Replay? Okay, thank you. It's in season one. And it's uh, it's interesting. It's this it's this um, this woman and her son. They are black. They are traveling to this uh, prestigious, historically all black college, and she has this camera that she very soon finds when she hits uh, the rewind button on it, it. It it takes them back in time just a little bit, right? And they're in this situation where they it usually starts back at this diner. And there's this uh, white cop there, and they're in this like very in the middle of nowhere. This one, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they keep getting in the car and trying to get to this college. And no matter what different choice she makes, this cop ends up getting to them and uh, essentially, you know, uh, assaulting them and and you know, putting uh, her son's life on the line. Uh, you know, I would say I really liked it all actually kind of almost up until the very end when it was very, it was just a very like hit you over the head statement about like, we have the cameras now or whatever kind of, or like with their iPhones and everything. But, um, for the most part, really, really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, I think, I think, you know, obviously that show came and went, apparently it was Jordan Peele's decision. He was like, I've told all the stories I want to tell in this format. We're done. But uh, obviously, it wasn't like this huge, huge hit, I think, right? It, it did pretty well. Um, but I think it's definitely worth watching. Uh, of all the reviews, yeah. <laughs> for sure the best one. That's not big, stiff competition. Also, really cool. They filmed it all in color, and that version's there. But oh, they yeah. also, just for the hell of it, they released the entire thing in black and white as well. So you can watch it in that original kind of approach, which I thought was cool. And that's all I got. I have one quote. 
actually. And that's and then that's all I got. Anything else you want to say, Jake, before we wrap this puppy up? No, I feel like it's time to take it home. All right, here you go. One last quote from old Rod Serling. The writer's role is to be a minister of the public's conscience. He must have a position, a point of view. He must see the arts as a vehicle of social criticism, and he must focus the issues of his time. There you go. Done. Boom. Put a bullet in it. It's over. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Check us out on, uh, if you'd like to support us further, please support us over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Hot off the presses, ad-free episodes. $5 there. $15 $15 layer. $25. Doesn't matter what layer, what tier, whatever you want to call it. Ad-free episodes. If you join, dude, skip all that. Just enjoy the Whoa. ad-free, son. Oh, we're doing ad-free episodes in place of bonus episodes every Absolutely week? Absolutely not. We also have weekly bonus episodes. It's the $5 layer. And the $15 layer, you get all of that. And you can join us for our Sunday study sessions where we hang out and cover whatever topic we are researching that week. Uh, this past week, we watched a bunch of Twilight Zone. And it was awesome. Uh, so please check us out. Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew ad free. And we'll check me out twitch.tv forward slash Holdenator's Ho. Assuming I don't have a full mental, uh, emotional breakdown, I am now streaming Monday through Friday. Whoa. Monday, Tuesday, Friday, uh, late afternoon, evening streams, depending on where you are in the country. And on Tuesday and, or I'm sorry, and on Wednesday and Thursday, I'm streaming in the morning or early afternoon, depending on where you are in the country. Streaming's weird when it comes to time zones. But regardless, that is my deal. What's your deal? Jake? Twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared. YouTube.com slash Puppet Jared. It's my VTuber channel and my flag sh- my flagship stream is the Thursday Cartoon Dumpster. Every Thursday, 7 p.m., we're watching weird, bad old cartoons and we're mocking the shit out of them in ways that you cannot even imagine. I love it. People love it. Go check it out. That's what it's you got to do. It's such a good stream and stream concept. I'm slightly jealous and wish I could steal the whole Please idea from you. But don't. You have a bigger audience than <laughs> me. You could get away with it. You're doing so good there, Jake. Everyone needs to check out twitch.tv forward slash Puppet Jared and also YouTube as well, right? Yep. YouTube dot com forward slash the to- uh, the Twilight Bone uh, <laughs> where you can get Jake as his Puppet Jared character just talking about pornographic versions of all of your favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, I think that's it, right, Jake? Uh, Why don't we give them the sign-off? Hey, remember, everybody, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. In the Twilight Zone. Bum, 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 bum! What a twist. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. 
For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.